From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. This episode is going to be all about millennials, who they are, what makes them different, their attitudes about life, how it impacts them as a consumer, and eventually what it means to business and the economy. I'm bringing back an old friend of the show, Paul Robertson, a senior portfolio manager at Bernstein, to join the discussion. Paul, thanks for joining. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm delighted to be invited back to uh, Mark to Markets. Uh, this is my Sally Field at the Oscars moment. <laughs> That's just a little boomer reference there, Mark, to get us going. So, Paul, I think of you as the the think piece guy at Bernstein. You led the research we did on Bitcoin, and we had a podcast on that about a year ago. What led to the basic idea of doing research on millennials? Well, it's very much about disruption in the economy, Mark, and trying to understand what's driving it. And as soon as you start to think about all of the new businesses and business models that have come to prominence in the economy over the last couple of decades... You find yourself right up against a set of value judgments and behaviors that, to me, as a Gen Xer, are really interesting. And it doesn't take very much thought to realize that it is this millennial generation that is so crucial in causing the creation of these new business models. I look at my children, who are not millennials. And I watch them do things that I find mind-boggling, like playing a video game and streaming TV shows on their iPods simultaneously. Are they good at either? I have no idea. I mean, I assume that that they're not because they're not focusing on one thing. Their Their attention is distributed across these two different things. But yet to them, it's perfectly normal. And when you look at what they're doing, you realize that those sorts of behaviors are the backbone of companies like, well, certainly Netflix, but Amazon and all sorts of new economy companies that we see today. So let me step back. You defined yourself as a Gen Xer. Even in the broadest terms, how do we define who a millennial is? Well, the... The basic definition of millennials is that they are people born between 1981 and 1996. That makes them anywhere from 23 to 38 today. We Gen Xers, actually Mark, I'm not sure where you fit in this in this dichotomy, but Gen Xers are sort of 15 years older on average, born between 1965 and 1980. Uh, the boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. And the silent generation, which I think is a very strange term because I've never found them to be silent at all. I've never heard the term. I think of them, maybe it's the Brokaw thing, as the greatest generation, but I may have the timing wrong. Well, apparently the Pew Research Center hasn't adopted that um, that title, but it seems a more appropriate title. The this, the, the, this generation was born between 1928 and 1945. So is Pew the, I don't know, the regulator on what the generational dates are? are? Are they the authority? I think what they really are is the place that finally arrives at a consensus. These, The Pew Research Center is based in Philadelphia, and if you go to their website, you can read all sorts of interesting material about how generations are defined and what makes them different. 
But what you also get the sense of when you read papers on their website is there's a lot of discussion about how to define generations that go on between Pew and people uh, in the advertising business, sociologists, psychologists. So when Pew finally settles on a definition, an age range, uh, it's not really that they are going alone here. They're really trying to solidify a consensus that's formed over time through these conversations. And specific to millennials, is there a experience or something around those dates or those ages that group them together? There's no single defining experience that makes a millennial a millennial. But what we can certainly look at is a childhood characterized by affluence and attention. It really is early childhood experience that's most important here for laying down behaviors and values and attitudes that are likely to persist through life. I mean, if we go back to the... So this is very Freudian. Everything that happened in your first five years is who you are forever. It's very much <laughs> like that. But but if that strikes you as, as bizarre, the, the clearest example is to think about people who grew up during the Great Depression. That was such a traumatic experience that their approach to spending money, saving money, investing money was powerfully powerfully affected by that formative experience throughout the rest of their lives. Now, it, it shows up in all sorts of ways. Um, that kind of rough, tough upbringing propels people into adulthood much more quickly than they might otherwise. Millennials are the exact opposite. Millennials were raised in an environment of very small families where all of the attention of the family was focused on a single child or two children, maybe three, but rarely more than that. Two parents working, but all of their resources devoted to these children. So it was a world of affluence. Um, and what it led to was, was really a delayed onset of what we traditionally think of as, as adult experiences. So contrary perhaps to your listeners' um, preconceptions about this, millennials started drinking at a, at a later age than earlier generations, had sex for the first time at a later age than prior generations. This seems very surprising as to what I would think. I, I'm thinking that as, as we've gone forward, everyone's gotten more adult or quicker sooner. It seems as though I'm wrong on that perception. In, Which in, is fine. <laughs> in, 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 in many ways that matter, I think it's actually been the reverse. So if you think about the proportion of each age group that was married or divorced but, uh, at ages 21 through 36, it was 83% of what we've called the silent generation were either married or married and divorced uh, sometime between the age of 21 and 36, and only 42%, half that number of millennials had gone through the same experience. So what, when I think about millennials, and I say this um, in the most positive way I can, it's, it's about delayed onset of adulthood, not accelerated uh, embracing of adult responsibilities. How big of a group are they? Because you've started by saying they often came from small families, so one, two, three, rarely more than that, which would make me think that 
yes, we talk a lot about them, and it feels like our office is dominated by them, but but then there wouldn't be a lot of them. Well, surprisingly, there are a lot of them. We've we've been experiencing declining birth rates. I think they're sometimes called declining fertility rates, which is a bit unfortunate. Declining birth rates as we've gone through time in the Western world. So there was the boomer generation means baby boomer generation. This is the group of people um, born in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Big boom in the number of, of people born. But from that point on, family sizes began to shrink again. And so the Gen X group is actually quite a bit smaller than the millennials group. Millennials today in our population vie with with, um, baby boomers to be the largest group. There's sort of roughly 70 million in each age group, in the boomer age group and in the millennials age group. But clearly, as time goes by, millennials are about to become the largest group in the population. Tens of millions more millennials than Gen Xs. uh, And it's not clear that subsequent generations are going to rival millennials in size anytime soon. So, so there must be a crossover point. I don't know when it is, but it would be relevant to think about from an economic perspective when, frankly, um, mortality of baby boomers in silent generation changes the dynamics where more and more as a percentage of the country is millennials. Well, from a purely uh, number of population point of view, we're not there yet. Okay. The, the baby boomer group, is the cohort, is still a little bit bigger. But as people age, and they tend to spend less. So from an economic point of view, it's probably the case that millennials are already vying for dominance, leadership within the, the economy. And certainly in the behaviors that characterize millennials and the impact that has on business, millennials have already profoundly affected our economy. So, so let's talk about that. So, so how should we first think about what millennials are, what they care about? And then it'll be interesting to transition that discussion into, so how are they impacting how the economy is working? All right. So, so let's go through this. There are really three um, There are many behaviors we could point to, but I want to condense it down to about three behaviors. The the first is immediacy. Millennials have always had what they wanted when they wanted it, and they continue to believe that that's the way the world should treat them. In fact, there's their own acronym here. It's I want what I want when I want it. And so this demand, this expectation of immediacy characterizes uh, millennials. But is, is that driven by, I don't know, the attitude or just frankly the information age they've grown up in? Everything is available nearly instantaneously. Well, it's as, avail- as available to you and I as it is to millennials. Fair but point. But you and I don't necessarily consume multiple media streams simultaneously. Millennials do. So, again, we, we, when we go back and think about the upbringing of millennials, they are the first generation to experience um, 24-7 connectivity. Uh, I remember discovering email. <laughs> <laughs> many, many years ago. The Blackberry was mind-blowing. <laughs> the Blackberry was mind-blowing. But millennials have always taken the notion that they can be, that they are connected to their friends, to their peer group, to their family, and to the internet constantly, 
for granted. And so we've, we've this expectation of immediacy combined with this notion of, of connectivity are powerful drivers of, of the millennial mindset. But there's a couple others I want to tease out. I talked about millennials growing up in, in a world of affluence. When you grow up in a world of affluence, when your basic needs are met, you sort of move up the hierarchy of needs into higher needs. Millennials, to a lesser extent than, than prior generations, don't lust for conspicuous consumption of goods or services, but what they lust for is seemingly conspicuous consumption of experiences. When you think about Facebook or you think about Instagram or social media more generally, it's about trumpeting the experiences you've had. Here's the photo of you at Niagara Falls. Here's the photo of you at the Grand Canyon. Here's you with a celebrity. It's about experiences. So millennials don't so much prize um, conspicuously consuming goods but they clearly are into conspicuously consuming experiences. And they're very willing to share. Part of this conspicuous consuming experience involves you've got to share the experiences with other people. And millennials are very willing to share. There is a expectation, of course, of reciprocity, that you'll like their photo, that you'll post similar photos of your own, that there is a reciprocal exchange of these things. But to summarize, the, the behaviors that we think characterize millennials and are driving such powerful change in the business world are uh, around these three prongs, this expectation of immediacy related to an expectation of instant connectivity, uh, an emphasis on experience, and a desire to share. It also feels like these aren't standalone. So you were giving the example of, of, of going to the Grand Canyon and taking that photo. So I've had an experience, I've shared it, and then I want to instantly hear back from people that they liked what I did. So, so it's not like three standalone things. And I, and I guess to pivot this a little, if you're a company that can play on multiple of these, if not all three, you might be on the holy grail. Maybe not, we could debate that, but, but there might be something there. Look, Mark, I think you're totally right. It, these behaviors are all so interconnected. But, but I want to just try and tease out what's so unique here. So I want to talk about streaming video for a moment because I've brought this up a couple of times already. When We should also note here that you're an ex-media analyst. There's a little bit of a passion in this in this point. Well, there is, there is. Um, not that I, uh, not that I'm upset by the demise of traditional media companies per se, but I'm just fascinated. But I mean, I, I remember in the old quote water cooler days when you might watch an episode of Seinfeld, and then it was a social experience. You'd watch it perhaps in the privacy of your home, but you'd go into work the next day, and you'd talk about it with people. I mean, and you talk about it for a week because you had a week because the next episode wasn't going to be screened for a week. And so you talked about it. These days, my kids will watch entire series of shows like Seinfeld or The Office or Parks and Rec. They'll watch an entire series in a single sitting and they don't necessarily talk about it they don't come back and say, wasn't that really really interesting in episode five of season three when right. this happened? No, they've 
consume the whole thing in one bite-sized chunk and they're on to the next one. But the weird thing is then then it's, to get back to the millennials, then it's harder for them to share and connect over it because they're doing it in isolation where we all watched Seinfeld or The Sopranos and talked about it on Monday morning together. Yes. So, yes, all of this connectivity and all of this sharing is specific. Um, There are specific manifestations of it, and there are other manifestations that are missing. I had this experience most recently. I watched a series with my kids on Netflix, and I wanted to talk about it. (laughs) What a Gen X thing to do. I actually wanted to, like, talk about it and exchange perspectives. And they're like, yeah, Dad, whatever. (laughs) While they're trying to stream the latest episode of whatever. So, so yes. But the, the phenomena of streaming is all about immediacy. It's all about immediate gratification and then you're on to the next thing. And go on. No, so so uh, we might go down a rabbit hole as a, a, a first second here, but on this notion of media, I, it, it's, it surprises me, although maybe it shouldn't, when we walk around the office, how many of the millennials we work with don't have TV. And what I really mean is cable TV. They have no access to current news, whether it be cable or there's a snowstorm coming. They don't get that information from traditional sources that I guess every prior generation did. Yes, they operate within social networks. Very uh, Again, it's sort of a delayed onset of adult stuff. Your social network, your peer network is very important in defining um, who you are and the information that you receive and, and what is perceived as relevant and interesting and intriguing and, and, and what isn't. So, so from a business perspective, it just jumps out at me. I'm thinking of, and I don't know if this is is helpful for this discussion but sports because sports have that unique from a media perspective they're immediate right you 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 can't wait a week for the results so that's probably the one thing in media it may explain why those rights are so expensive where you you have to watch it then you can't binge watch a season of the the nfl because it's over the results are known so that's probably the the unique thing and probably driving some of the the price there that's exactly right. Traditional media has taken a real pounding from streaming media. What's happened is there's been a mass migration of eyeballs away from traditional media, free-to-air television, cable TV, towards this streaming phenomenon. My kids say to me, Dad, we want to watch Netflix because we don't want to see any ads. I can, on many levels, relate that to that. <laughs> it makes some sort of sense. But it's destroying the traditional um, media business. So you're right. Sports remains one area of immediacy where it brings together large audiences on um, free-to-air and pay TV platforms, and it's why the the prices paid for those rights have just ballooned, and it's why the the leagues themselves are so um, flush with cash, and why the athletes themselves are so flush with cash. But the rest of the traditional media world has suffered enormously from the kind of behavior my kids were manifesting. And we're seeing seismic changes in the media world. We saw Fox effectively throw up its hands and say, we can't compete. And so we're waiting now, um, should be in March, for the consummation of a deal in which most of the Fox TV and movie production assets will be sold to Disney. We've, also, we've recently seen the Time Warner TV and movie production assets acquired by AT&T. Uh, Universal is owned by Comcast. And what we're likely to see, uh, even perhaps before the end of the year, is the remnants of big media 
uh, enter the streaming market really aggressively. And so it's just going to be fascinating to watch how Netflix in particular responds when Disney pulls content from the Netflix platform and unveils it on its own streaming platform. So, so let's make it to an investment question beyond media. You have, in lots of industries, uh, you could say um, the hotel industry versus Airbnb right. or, or Netflix versus um, NBC, um, Amazon and the grocery stores versus Kroger. I mean, you could go through an, a number of these, which are being impacted by technology slash millennials. So, so how, how do you think about big existing companies that have been profitable for very many years with lots of cash versus these new, new players who may or may not be profitable today, but, but may be in tune with what millennial preferences are? Well, it's a, it's a really difficult question. The first thing that we have to understand is that the initial disruptor in any industry doesn't have to be the winner. And you just have to think about um, BlackBerry that you mentioned before, the, the smartphone business. Uh, names like BlackBerry or Nokia or Palm, remember Palm? Palm right. These names sort of rose, had their moments of prominence, and today um, we, we talk about Apple and Samsung as being the prominent players in the industry. And I think we're even seeing more recently that the, the smartphone business is maturing in ways that, that might lead to further change uh, in the future. So the first thing about disruption is the initial disruptors don't have to win. But sometimes they do. It's, it's hard to imagine Google, for example, being dethroned from its place as the primary search engine uh, operator within the Internet. But not all uh, existing companies suffer uh, when business models change. Um, the payments networks are a classic example of this. You might be familiar with Apple Pay or Google Pay or any of these mobile payments apps, and you might wonder what that means for the owners of the traditional payment network. Like a MasterCard. Like a MasterCard. Well, the answer is they're just fine with that because almost all of those transactions run through those alternative systems end up being processed on their networks. So they're fine. Venmo is the one payments um, app that doesn't use a Visa or MasterCard back end to process the trades. But for the most part, Visa and MasterCard are just perfectly comfortable with evolution and innovation in payments, um, so long as people continue to use their <laughs> networks. We've talked about media, and in the media world, we've had a shake-up. Um, some companies have recognized that they don't have sufficient scale to compete, but new aggregations of, of assets have been formed and the big players may be able to come back and, and, and respond. Um, there are other companies where we're frankly concerned about their long-run potential. If you think about, and we actually haven't talked about this yet, but another trend inspired by millennials is the desire for fresh food rather than processed food. And if you're a processed food manufacturer, like a Campbell's soup, Campbell soup, right. Campbell's soup would be the classic example, then you have to sit there and ask how relevant are those companies in an evolving food landscape? So at each point, it's, it's a lot of interesting research. Uh, you know, when we look at companies like Amazon and Netflix, the research question is just how far can they go? 
what 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 conceivable level of profits can they achieve in the future with established companies it's often the opposite question how bad can it get do they have the resources to respond do they recognize that they need to respond how successful will those responses be so i, I want to bring this back to the notion of experience and, and we went down the sports path let's go the opposite i know you did some research on um the beauty industry so so what'd you find there in how millennial preferences and experience are changing that segment well so much of of millennials approach to life is about enjoying the experience now i don't know if you've ever had this experience but buying say perfume at the beauty counter at a department store maybe for a girlfriend or a wife isn't necessarily the world's most pleasant experience. No, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's perhaps the way to, because in, in some ways it's it's such a controlled sale. Um, it's 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 disempowering. You are you're you're the supplicant who goes up to the counter uh, to meet the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper may or may not decide to share the briefest of brief experiences with the product before snapping the box closed and demanding that you fork over your cash. That's not the way millennials think the world should be structured. For millennials, it's all about an experience. It's all about walking into the store and trying 10 or 20 different products before making a purchase. And so the gatekeepers in a store like a, an Ulta or a Sephora store are not gatekeepers at all. They're just there to say, oh, you're looking for mascara? That's over in that part of the store. You're looking for a body wash? That's over in that part of and the store. And then they'll just let you try tons of stuff. Let you try. So it's an outing. It's an outing. And, and it's not just a store-based experience, though. Many millennials will walk into the store with an idea of, particular products they want to try because they've discovered them on social media this leads us to the kardashians all good stories lead to the kardashians <laughs> so one of the kardashians is a young woman named kylie jenner and she is famous for being the first billionaire cosmetics entrepreneur of our era now how did she do that well i have no idea <laughs> actually nor do i but but, but i'm told what happened is 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 by being a Kardashian, sort of attracted social media attention, um, created a buzz, uh, and got some interesting products placed in stores like Ulta and Sephora and things like that. I'm not sure if these were the actual places. Um, and so with that following, millennials would walk into the store and seek out those kind of products. You, you have to think about modern beauty stores as as not so much being gatekeepers for specific brands, but being brand incubators. It's easy, relatively easy, to get onto the shelf at, at say, an altar if you're a cosmetics new cosmetics company. Easy to get some shelf space in altar, but you'd better sell, and you'd better sell quickly because there's 10 more entrepreneurs behind you that Alta's willing to try out. I've heard that with Amazon. Uh, not with Amazon, excuse me, with Whole Foods, that if someone gets shelf space at Whole Foods and it doesn't sell, there's 100 other people who want that shelf space, so they'll just move on. Yeah, they, so um, Alta is what we call a brand incubator, uh, and, and Whole Foods uh, sounds like it's also a brand incubator in this space. Um, so the, the, the secret to success is an intriguing combination of um, social media 
engagement as well as shelf space as well as product quality it's a very different brew i guess that you have to boil up in order to succeed in these businesses i'm even thinking about how shopping malls have become more experiential they all use this word we're going to have a movie theater and a restaurant and a bar so you're not just going to come in here buy product for an hour you're going to have an experience in an outdoor shopping center it, it seems as though the millennial preferences are dragging everyone along with them not just the millennials right we're getting pulled along we're gen x uh, the baby boomers are getting pulled along so I, I guess this speaks a lot to the power of their influence as a, as a generation absolutely it's funny to be sitting here on this side of the hudson river this morning mark because um, not very many miles as the crow flies over in new jersey on the other side of the hudson river is the american dream mall complex which is actually nearing completion and the american dream complex is going to be the the ultimate proof statement or lack thereof for the proposition you're describing it is the the latest in the uh, experiential mall in fact um, so much of the square footage within that complex will be devoted to cinemas and restaurants and things like this it's being um, it's owned by the group who owns the mall of america it's funny you say that because that's what I was thinking of as you were talking about this was the Mall of America from 20 years ago. Right. Well, th that's right. You've got the Mall of America with its um, amusement park right. <laughs> in the middle of it. And I think the same family owns another mall in Canada, another mall yeah, complex in Canada. Edmonton or so, in Edmonton, something like that. Something like that. So this is the newest, the latest, the greatest. And it's happening just five miles, perhaps, as the crow flies from here. And... It will be interesting. It might be the last great mall complex ever built if it doesn't succeed. Last question, Paul. I think of traditionally people's attitudes, preferences, behaviors changing as they age. Do we think the things you're talking about with millennials, connectivity, immediacy, sharing, are because they're young, or is this going to be who they are when they're 40, 50, 60, and 70? So the first thing I want to say is that the, these um, expectations around immediacy, connectivity, experience, and sharing, we think are here to stay. These are critical values that define millennials and which our business world needs to wrap itself around today because they're here to stay. That said, we all go through life cycles that change the way we consume and change our attitudes and our preferences and our behaviors and millennials will be as exposed to that as as any other age group so what i'm trying to suggest is that there are some behaviors values and preferences here that we can understand that we can root back to formative those formative childhood periods of time and which are not likely to change, which make this generation meaningfully different from the generations that preceded them. And there are other behaviors and values and preferences that will experience the more normal lifestyle, life cycle changes um, that every generation goes through. I mean, they'll, they'll buy homes and... Uh, They'll have children, and they'll worry about childcare. But this might be like the automobile, right? Pe once it's there, people aren't going back to the horse and buggy. Yes. The information age, ha it's happened. They're in it. They're not going to slow down their multitasking ability. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's exactly right, although your, your car thing just 
just my, my ears pricked up because the what we do see about millennials is less of a willingness to buy cars. Cars are a major capital asset. They're a good. Now, when I was a kid, you aspired to have a car. A car meant freedom. To millennials, a car has become a service. You want to get from point A to point B, and you don't necessarily need to own a car to do that. Uber will do it. Lyft will do it. Uh, and we can expect to see ride sharing uh, continue to grow in our economy. So I'm not sure they'll buy cars. And I'm not sure that the car has quite the same stranglehold on our economy in 50 years' time than it has today. So the car is a really interesting one because it can be re it's a it's a it's a good that can be reduced to a service and you're and just millennials not are doing that. and you're not and you're not saying the car because we're going to have um trains and and self-propelled flying machines you're saying just the it's going to become a utility it's going, it's going to become a utility and remember and the money you spend on a car is money that you can't spend on going to the Grand Canyon with your selfie stick and having that photo taken so that you can post it on Instagram about what a wonderful time you're having. So and, and, and Paul, you haven't even mentioned the cost of keeping a car in New York City. And I, well, I live in the suburbs, Mark, so that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. But and I, I thank you for joining. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on Mark on Markets. Uh, to our listeners, any questions on this or your individual financial circumstances, feel free to reach out. I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or at 212-969-6655. Make sure to listen to other episodes of Mark to Markets and like us on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. Mm -hmm.